Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. Light from the Land of the Sphinx. Chapter 29, Gifts, Arts, and Trades for the Sanctuary. We now proceed to consider the sanctuary itself, in which Jehovah would deign to dwell amongst men. While it contained symbolisms, some at least of which were to be found in the temples of the gods of the heathen, in its teaching and idea it was absolutely different from any other erection upon the earth. We have to remember that the sanctuary was the tabernacle of the wilderness, a tent amongst Israel's tents, adapted to the circumstances of the people on their way to the land of promise. When Israel was settled as a nation in Canaan, the sanctuary took the form of a temple. Israel had only just left Egypt, a wealth of Egypt's treasures was in their camp, and the arts and trades of Egypt were to their hand. God used for his purpose what was common to the camp, and communicated lessons of the deepest spiritual import by means of the materials and skill which were common to the people. The arts and trades utilized by Jehovah in the construction of his sanctuary had attained to the highest proficiency in Egypt a long time prior to Israel's exodus. Having been sojourners in the land, Israel had materials, tools, and knowledge for the work, but more than artistic and mechanical power were required to translate into shape and form the ideas patterned to Moses on the mount. Special understanding was necessary, hence the chief artists were gifted with peculiar wisdom, by which they were enabled to grasp the thoughts of God, and to express them with artistic perfection. As it was the purpose of God to utilize the wealth and skill of the people, they were commissioned to bring gifts, and from the material of the gifts to make that which Jehovah required. All could give, if but few could make. The principle governing the acceptability of these offerings was very simple, namely, a willing heart, that which governed the acceptability of their work was a wise heart. But though willing and wise, both gifts and work were to be according to the requirements of Jehovah. If he would dwell among men, he must be his own architect and designer, consequently every part of the structure had to be formed precisely in accordance with his patterns. See Exodus chapter 31 verses 1 to 11. The chief workers were, Bezalel Betzalel, a name which means ill the shadow of God, and, Aholab, a name which means tabernacle of the Father. Bezalel was not only divinely instructed to work himself, but God, had put into his heart to teach, Exodus chapter 35 verse 34, that is to say, had qualified him to instruct others in the work. Exodus chapter 25 verse 2, of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. Exodus chapter 36 verse 2, every wise-hearted man, in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even every one whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work to do it. Exodus chapter 25 verse 40. All was accomplished, even to the smallest details, by direct divine order, even down to the pegs of the dwelling and court, Exodus chapter 27 verse 19, and their cords, i.e. the cords required to fasten the tent and the hangings round the court to the pegs that were driven into the ground. The words which the Lord commanded Moses so did he, are repeated eighteen times in the last two chapters of Exodus. It is not enough to desire to glorify God by splendid gifts meant to adorn his house or to beautify his service. The Israelites might have done that, and yet only have succeeded in, creating another splendid idolatry. All was done, as the Lord commanded Moses, therefore all outspoke the mind of Jehovah, and not the mere taste and art of man. Jehovah's thoughts shone out in every item of the structure, and light beamed forth from all, displaying Christ and God's salvation. The mineral, vegetable and animal kingdoms were all laid under tribute for the work, and various arts and trades were called into service, while one great principle governed the whole erection, a principle of very great charm. Each part was rendered acceptable to God by the touch of the human hand. Gems, gold, silver, and copper took the first place of importance in the design, wood and fine linen were given a place almost as worthy, skins formed the outer covering of the tent. 
the gold and silver were weighed, and wood and metal were proportioned according to standard measures, Exodus chapter 30 verse 13, a fact which is a witness to the common knowledge of the people of these important matters. This knowledge was divinely regulated, as were all weights, measures, and money, instituted in Israel. The structure of the sanctuary and its furniture, and the mixture for the incense were all planned according to definite proportion. Gold, silver, and copper were easily fused, and a single process sufficed to make them available for every purpose. The principal art required for fabricating implements of copper depending on the proper proportions and qualities of alloy introduced. Nature offers these three metals to man, and they are found in their perfect state in the clefts of rocks, in the sides of mountains, or the channels of mines. That coined money was known to the Jews at the time of the institution of the law is inferred by the Mishnic doctors from the precept. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 25. The unit of weight and measure was taken from natural objects, a full grain of barley, a hen's egg, the length of the four grin. The unit of weight used by the Jews was identical with that of the Phoenicians, which was also that of the Assyrians. Forming part of a system entirely different from that of the Egyptians. The weights from Nineveh now in the British Museum, are in the form of lions and ducks. The lion weight which is in the best preservation is marked 30 manus, and is now, notwithstanding its great age, within 3% of the full weight. The weights being in the form of a cow's head indicate that at one time the cow stood as a standard of value. The fact of the sheep being impressed upon it, a coin, seems to agree with the custom of many people of taking a lamb as the standard of value. In Ethiopia and Darfur they reckon a piece of cloth as equal to a full-grown sheep, and I have myself heard an Ethiopian talk of his sheep as his money. The art of the goldsmith took the pre-eminence in the building. In our illustration of the gold worker on page 184, the exceeding simplicity of his manner of working will be observed. But his hand-wrought jewellery is so delicate and lovely, as to outdo all that Western nations can now produce by the complex machinery. The same thing is to be observed in the arts of weaving and embroidery. The relics of old linen, with woven patterns, or with gold threads delicately wrought into it, are marvellous in the fineness of the material, the beauty of the various colours employed, and the lacing in of the fine gold threads. Nothing of the kind is now made. The machines used were of the simplest kind. The hand accomplished these perfect works of art. Handwork bears the stamp of individuality upon it. The mind and taste of the worker are there. There was thus much scope for the wise-hearted men and women who formed the beautiful linen veils and curtains of the sanctuary, as they worked the blue, purple, and scarlet colors, and the forms of the cherubim wrought into them with fine gold thread. The eastern eye seems to love variety in design, and variety in unity is that which is found in nature, western peoples are content with repetitions of the self-same form at least. Such is the case now that machinery rules art. A small pattern, about half an inch broad, formed the edging of one of the finest of these cloths, and was composed of a stripe of blue alternating with three lines of fawn color, forming a simple and elegant border. These stripes were produced in the loom by colored threads previously dyed in the yarn. The blue dye in some cases was indigo. Sometimes the linen would be covered with small figures and hieroglyphics, so finely drawn that here and there the lines are with difficulty followed by the eye. And there is no appearance of the ink having run in any part of the cloth. The Egyptians were masters in their manner of weaving or embroidering figures in gold and colors into their linen garments. We read of a corslet, amongst others, of linen ornamented with numerous figures of animals worked in gold. Pliny mentions cloth woven with gold threads, sometimes entirely of those materials. Without any woolen or linen ground, many of the Egyptian stuffs presented various patterns worked in colors by the loon, independent of those produced by the dyeing or printing process and so richly composed that they vied with cloths embroidered with the needle.
the Egyptian yarn seems all to have been spun with the hand, and the spindle is seen in all the pictures representing the manufacture of cloth. Spinning was principally the occupation of women, but men also used the spindle, and were engaged in the loom. Cherubim work of the artistic weaver shalt thou make it lit, work or labor of the thinker. This is applied to artistic weaving, in which either figures or gold threads, chapter 28 verses 6, 8, and 15, are worked into the cloth, and which is distinguished from variegated weaving, verse 36. The garments of the priests, especially those of glory and beauty worn by the high priest, called also for great taste and skill, and left scope for variety. The carpenter or joiner had his share of honor in the sacred structure. We are unable to follow him in a considerable part of his work, as the details of the boards of the building, and the smaller parts of the ark, table, and altar are not given. The wood he used was acacia or shittim, the timber tree of the wilderness, and such of the people as had an eye for its value, felled it and stored its most useful limbs. And every man with whom was found shittim wood for any work of the service brought it. Exodus chapter 35 verse 24. If the embroiderer might individualize in ornamental details, the joiner was called primarily to exactitude. Size and measurement were the great requirements from his hand, and he worked by the cubit of the sanctuary, by the divinely given standard of length. It may be that much of his work was executed in inlaid and variegated wood, and in such work within the compass of the exact measurement, there could be the diversity so loved by the artist. And so delightfully in accordance with the handiwork of God. The fineness and quality of ancient Egyptian woodwork is apparent in our museums, boxes, chairs, and stools, made thousands of years ago, are worthy of the highest admiration while some of the carving of those bygone days is of noble workmanship. A considerable part of the joiner's work was overlaid with gold, a style of art very common in Egypt. The sycamore and the acacia furnished him the wood carvers with a material of a delicate grain and soft texture. The great armchairs, folding seats, footstools, and beds of carved wood, are generally distinguished by an elegance and grace. Not only were small objects, appertaining to the service of the gods, and connected with religion, or articles of luxury and show in the temples, tombs, or private houses, so decorated, overlaid with thick gold leaf, the sculptures on the lofty walls of an aditum, the ornaments of a colossus, the doorways of the temples. And parts of numerous large monuments were likewise covered with gilding. The dyer should be also mentioned. The colors of the sanctuary were full of significance. The dyer figures frequently on the monuments. His skill in Egypt was very great, and the Egyptians were masters in color. Israel had a variety of dyed stores with them, and every man with whom was found blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hair, and red skins of rams, and badger's skins, brought them, indeed. All that was utilized in the sanctuary, except the silver redemption money, was given by Israel to Jehovah, and was given with a willing heart. Some have calculated the value of Israel's gifts, and the amount for metal alone has been put down at about £240,000 of our money, in AD 1896. This would represent but a comparatively small sum at the hand of each individual of the people. There were 600,000 men, and we may take it as many women, not to count the children. So that if 1,200,000 persons each gave one-fifth of a pound the supposed total would be exceeded. Accepting the ransom money, the gifts were made in kind, and a bracelet or an ornament from each family would more than supply the requisite amount of metal. And as Israel did not wear their ornaments after the sin of the golden calf, it is reasonable to suppose that the idolatrous symbols of Egyptian worship were melted down and were transformed into the symbols of Jehovah's glory. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets, and earrings, and rings, and tablets, all jewels of gold, all of which had been brought out of Egypt. Unless some had been taken as spoil from the Amalekites.
The brazen mirrors of the women, which were given to Jehovah's service were also of Egyptian origin, and, in most if not all instances, bore upon them emblems or representations of the gods. The dedication to the divine service of precious things was not a new institution, for the treasuries of the temples of Egypt were filled with such objects. Israel dedicated its gifts to Jehovah, and what was given was accepted by him as wave offerings, the offerer lifting up the gift and waving it heavenwards, as before God. As an acknowledgement that he to whom it was offered is Lord and giver of all. Rich vestments, necklaces, bracelets, jewelry of various kinds, and other ornaments, vases of gold, silver, and porcelain. Bags of gold, were presented to the gods, and rare woods. Such treasures constituted, the riches of the treasury of the temples, and the donor's names and his offerings were catalogued upon the temple walls. Kings frequently offered each gift, singly to the gods, decorating their statues with them, and placing them, the gifts, upon their altars. The gold which Ramesses III gave to the principal cities and temples of Egypt is detailed in the Great Harris Papyrus. The gold is classed as gold or gold of the balance, best gold, gold of the second quality, and white gold, apparently electrum, distinguished from silver. Which is afterward mentioned. The difference between waving and heaving an offering is obvious from the etymology of the two Hebrew words by which those acts are expressed. The one signifies to wave to and fro, the other to lift on high. In waving, the offering was turned to the four quarters of the earth, and also to heaven. In the heaving it was signified that the offering was raised from earth, and was dedicated to him whose glory is revealed in heaven.